I'm Callie McQuilkin with the Cornell Advocacy Project. We're a student organization dedicated to providing an education in advocacy to anyone with an internet connection. You're listening to Crossing Borders, the third episode in Speak Now, our webinar series on advocacy in a polarized world. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Stephen Yale Lair from the Cornell Law School. Professor Yale Lair has been practicing and teaching immigration law for over 35 years, during which time numerous publications have named him one of the best immigration attorneys in the world. Now, in past episodes of Speak Now, we've talked more broadly about polarization across a range of issue areas. Today, though, we're going to be diving into a specific subset of American policy, immigration. We'll break down why immigration has become a heated partisan issue before exploring strategies we can use to reduce hostilities. To start off, I'd like to discuss the scope of this problem. Professor, can you tell us, how polarized is immigration? Since the 1990s, the Pew Research Center has conducted an annual survey on Americans' attitudes toward immigration. Back in 2005, the difference between Republicans and Democrats on immigration was only 5%. Most of them thought about the same on immigration. But since then, it's gotten a lot more polarized along party lines. Right now, 78% of Democrats view immigration positively, but only 31% of Republicans view immigration positively. Republicans are three times more likely to think of immigration as increasing crime in their communities than Democrats are. So we've gotten a lot more polarized in recent years. Those are striking statistics. So can you tell us why has immigration become so polarized, particularly in recent years, as you mentioned? It's hard to know. There are a lot of factors. You know, back in the good old days, before the 1990s, I'd say that immigration cut across party lines. You had some Democrats that were fairly conservative on immigration, and you had some Republicans that were to the left of some Democrats on immigration. I'd say one of the turning points was probably in 2006 when then-President George W. Bush uh, introduced a comprehensive immigration reform legislation. The Senate proposed uh, having a way to bring undocumented immigrants on a path toward legalization, but the House introduced its own bill that would restrict immigration, increase border security, and impose criminal penalties on people who worked without authorization. That House bill caused an outcry among immigrants, and there were a lot of marches around the streets. And in turn, uh, people, especially Republicans, um, had a backlash against those demonstrations by immigrants. So since then, we've had a lot of polarization. President Trump, of course, increased this divide by using divisive rhetoric to talk about immigrants as criminals and rapists. Uh, and having such controversial measures introduced, such as the Muslim travel ban and child separation. So we see that in the last five years in particular, immigration has gotten a lot more polarized. I want to talk about why immigration in particular has provoked such strong reactions from the public when brought up in political discourse, like the marches that you mentioned and kind of the public outcry. 
Now, in a recent paper, doctors Nicole Argo and Dr. Kate Jassen theorized that immigration is what they call a sacred value for many Americans. Can you tell us what do they mean by that? And how are sacred values different than others that we might hold? Well, according to Argo and Jassen, sacred values are absolute values that you consider to be part of your core value structure. So, for example, if I were to offer you $5,000 for your child, and you immediately rejected that out of hand without thinking about it, well, keeping your child is a sacred value to you. Sacred values differ from normal values in that we process sacred values in our brains in different part of their brain that talks about morality and inhibiting negative connotations, etc. As opposed to the other side of the brain that focuses on cost-benefit analysis. So when we're talking about sacred values, we have to think about them and talk about them in different ways than normal values. Interesting. So how then do political parties play into all of this? You mentioned earlier President Trump's divisive rhetoric on immigration, but how else can we view politicians' discussions of this subject through the lens of the sacred value? Well, if you think of immigration as a sacred value, um, so that you think of immigration as tied to how you view your own security, your own economic worth, American culture, your identity, then immigration is a sacred value and, and politicians can focus on that. So Trump, for example, garnered support as a presidential candidate by portraying immigrants as rapists and criminals and therefore not worthy of Americanness and be, thereby because immigrants were threatening American safety and their culture and their way of life, they denigrated immigrants and meant that immigrants are not worthy of our support. A Washington Post article found that Trump increased the nativist sentiment among Americans more than any other president in history. The number of Americans who consider immigrants to be a threat to our society more than doubled during the Trump presidency. Now, the overall number of immigrants who immigrated during that time actually was less than before, and the quality of the immigrants was the same as before. But nevertheless, the number of Americans uh, who thought that immigration was bad for the United States doubled during that time. So by insinuating that the mere presence of immigrants in our society was somehow hurting us, he Trump alienated immigrants as a group that cannot coexist with at least his Republican base. That continues today. So, for example, earlier this month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott criticized President Biden for releasing immigrants from Mexico into the United States, claiming that they were bringing COVID and hurting Texans. Well, factually, that's not true. Immigrants are processed for COVID before they are released into the United States. But by portraying immigrants as harming our sacred values of health and safety, particularly during this pandemic, Governor Abbott was able to portray immigrants as bad and forecast them as others as opposed to Americans. So it seems then that the language we're using to discuss immigration is really important here. Now, you've mentioned right, President Trump several times now. I, I know that the president also mandated the use of the phrase illegal alien in all internal communications of the Department of Homeland Security. Now, an interesting kind of flip side to this is that President Biden has proposed removing the word alien and replacing it with the word non-citizen. Is that change merely symbolic? Or how does the rhetoric we use and hear and employ shape American views on immigration? 
Rhetoric is important in how we frame the immigration controversy. So, for example, if you portray immigrants as aliens, then that automatically dehumanizes them and separates them from the rest of society. On the other hand, if you use the word non-citizen, that merely means that they lack citizenship in the United States, but otherwise they're still humans, they're still here, it's just that they don't have the right to vote yet. So using words can make a big difference in how we frame the debate. We should also think about how we frame immigration. Not, we should not frame it in a binary way. We shouldn't be talking about illegal versus legal immigrants or immigrants versus Americans. But really, we all have some connection to the United States. And some of us have been here longer than others. And some of us have more ties or more family members in the United States. So if we can stop talking in, in terms of binaries, like legal versus illegal or good versus bad, and talk more about the multiplicity of experiences that everyone has in the United States, we'll be much better off. So rhetoric is important in trying to reduce polarization in the immigration context. Let's dive deeper then into those strategies. You mentioned a few, but strategies to reduce the hostilities that we've talked about. Now, going back to the concept of the sacred value, doctors Argo and Jason recommended approaching conversations about sacred values kind of differently than other conversations we might have. So given that it seems like immigration fits into this umbrella of the sacred value, what rhetorical strategies can we use and should we use to persuade others who might not agree with us or our views on immigration? Well, first, if you're approaching someone who considers immigration as a sacred value, then merely talking about facts is not going to change them. You've got to get to their core beliefs, what motivates them. So there are three things that we should be doing. First, we need to understand where they're coming from. What are their core values about immigration? Are they tied to identity or economic security, or et cetera? If we can understand them, then we can go to the second step, which is trying to find common ground. So you can ask non-judgmental questions like, well, how did you come to have that core value? Or tell me a little bit more about that. Rather than saying they're wrong and I'm right, which just invites debate, come to it with a non-judgmental inquiring point of view. And the Argo and Jassen article, which is uh, one of the handouts that we'll give you after this talk, identifies how conservatives feel on a range of immigration issues and lets you understand how to approach them. Once you understand them, then you can talk about common ground. You can acknowledge their views without saying necessarily that you agree with their views, but simply saying that you understand their views means that you accept them for where they're coming from and makes them feel heard and respected. Then the third thing you can do is something called moral reframing. And that is to pose an argument not from where you're coming from, but from where they're coming from. So for example, a Stanford University professor found that conservatives are more likely to support immigration if you frame the issue from their core values of identity and economic security. So for example, if someone says, you know, I think um, that business owners should have the value to choose whoever they want, you can say, yes, that's right. And they should be able to choose immigrant workers as well too. So moral reframing can be difficult sometimes, but if you can do it, then it's very effective in changing other people's views. Professor, have you ever had a conversation with, with someone where you've struggled to convince them uh, to change their minds in immigration or where the humanizing tactics haven't worked? And, and in that case, what did you do? 
Good question. Uh, it's very difficult. It's, hard, it's almost impossible to do in one conversation. Um, I'm frequently on TV and I talk with hosts that are conservatives and we get into banter and you know I think I make a great point but I know I'm not changing their views. I think the thing you need to do is really have one-on-one -on -one conversations over a long period of time and that's not comfortable to do. Um, it's not comfortable to do in your own family and it's not comfortable to do in others. So you know the Facebook experiment in California I think is one way to do it because sometimes it's easier to talk with people who are not your immediate family members than it is with those who are in your immediate family. I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, regarding understanding and understanding those who might be different from us. Your book, Green Card Stories, explores the experiences of green card holders in order to make them um, kind of, it seems, more relatable or understandable to the average American. But your book also competes for airspace with the words of President Trump and the words of extreme conservative talk show hosts who might sometimes seem to dominate the narrative for certain Americans. So when we're communicating, how do you express these stories and these humanizing stories to Americans who may not want to listen? Well, I think we need to tone down the rhetoric and not get into arguments. We're not trying to assume the other person has bad intent or that they don't understand immigration, but just show empathy for where they're coming from. So going back to my three points before, understand where they're coming from. Realize that this is an important topic and people are not going to change their core or sacred values in one conversation. So you're going to start the conversation. You're going to keep it light. You may take a break so often, but again, by having a continued conversation with them, um, you're going to be able to start to understand where they're coming from and then try to find common ground. Don't go in with saying, here are the facts and you are wrong. If you can understand the other side, then you're going to be able to go much farther than by trying to come at them with simply facts. I do think we need to be careful about word choice and the way we ask questions or make statements about immigration. So instead of saying, for example, no child should be separated from their parents, that's the kind of statement that simply invites arguments, either yes or no. But instead, if you have an objective statement like studies have found that children who are separated from their parents suffer emotionally and may have brain development problems, then that is something that is objective and someone might be able to be willing to express or understand um, more sympathetically. Similarly, you don't want to divide immigrants by saying, well, I'm in favor of good immigration, but I don't want illegal immigration, or I want high-value economic immigrants, but not family immigrants. We're trying to humanize the whole debate uh, and talk about people as individuals. And that's where my book, Green Card Stories, comes in, because there we talked about 50 recent immigrants, how they came to the United States, and what they did after they came to the United States. So instead of thinking about immigration with a capital I as all immigrants being illegal, we talk about individual stories. And if people can hear individual stories, they may see that immigration is much more nuanced than these broad sweeping generalizations that politicians make about immigration. You mentioned that immigration is an incredibly nuanced issue. And I know that complexity also extends to the laws we use to frame immigration. In your view, Professor, under the American system, is there truly any such thing as illegal immigration? Well, 
depends what you mean by illegal immigration. There are people here who entered without legal status. Um, and, but they, you know, that's not a crime under current law. So, but that is a civil penalty in that they have violated our immigration status. And if they are put into what we call removal proceedings, they can be removed. But right now, it is not a crime to enter the United States illegally. Regarding the use of terms like illegal immigration, then, we face a tricky problem. As long as politicians think they can use catch-all terms to appeal to nativism and garner votes, they can keep beating that same drum. How, then, can pro-immigration candidates reach nativist voters or circumvent those anti-immigrant fears? That's a very good question. Um, I want to talk about the Know Nothing Party of 1848 as an example. That gained a lot of votes and they even had a presidential candidate at that time. So they were very popular for a couple of years, but by having the economy improve over time uh, and by immigrants still coming into the United States, the Know Nothing Party was able to wither away. I think we can do the same thing now uh, in the United States. If we can show the value of immigration, if we can personalize immigrants' stories, if we can get third-party validators such as business people and pastors and sheriffs to talk about the value of immigration, then people will think more positively about immigration. If we can have the one-on-one -on -one discussions about immigration and change people's sacred values, we can have a more positive view on immigration. So I think there's a lot that people can do both individually and as politicians to change the tenor of the immigration debate. Hmm. Changing that tenor seems more difficult, though, when misinformation about the risks of immigration circulates. This year, for example, we saw that play out when some conservative news media sources reported that immigrants with COVID-19 had been allowed into the country. These messages appealed to public health fears to justify more restrictive border controls. But do you have a statistic that refutes the claim about immigrants carrying COVID-19? Yes, President Trump issued an executive order uh, to the Centers for Disease Control under what's known as Title 42 of the U.S. Code that says that because of the concerns about pandemic, certain people cannot enter the United States. That actually, in my view, was too broad because it meant that really nobody could enter the United States. That Title 42 order is still in effect. And President Biden, when he said that certain people who had been waiting for their asylum hearings in Matamoros could be allowed to enter the United States, nevertheless required them to have a COVID test before they could come into the United States or be quarantined for a certain amount of time before they could be released into the interior of the United States. So we're doing everything that we can to make sure that we are protecting ourselves from people who may have COVID who want to enter the United States. There are business people and family members outside the United States, for example, who have visas who cannot come in because of this Title 42 order. That is still in effect. So we're not encouraging and not allowing people to come into the United States if we suspect that they have the coronavirus. And any, any suspicion on your part, I know you're not in public health, but any suspicion when that executive order or that, that regulation might change? No, President Biden has actually gotten uh, criticized by a number of people for not 
modifying that Title 42 mm -hmm. order. It's being overly um, restrictive in terms of who can come in. There are a lot of people who are outside the United States who have been separated from their families or from their companies for months uh, who don't have COVID, but nevertheless have not been able to get an exemption from the order to come in. So I personally hope that he will modify the order to make it a little more tailored than the broad brush that it currently exists in. Shifting away from a discussion of government and policy, I'd like to go back to actions average Americans can take. As we're assessing these strategies about humanization and how we communicate, what can individuals do to counter immigration polarization in our communities? We can do several things. So for example, we can educate ourselves about immigration. We can find out what our own sacred values are and how we got them. Then we can go out and do the three things that I talked about before. Start having difficult conversations with other people. And by difficult, I don't mean going at them, but simply going to people who have a different view on immigration and start the conversation understand what their core values are, and then try to find common ground, and then morally reframe the arguments from their perspective to show why there could be some differences that they may want to consider about immigration. Changing views is difficult and takes a while, but it can be done. There was an experiment in California, for example, in 2017, where 60 California residents got together in a private Facebook group every day for a month to talk about immigration. And the 60 people had very different ideas about immigration. Um, and they wanted to see if it would change their views. Well, it didn't necessarily change individuals' views in that group about immigration, but it certainly got people to think more seriously about how complex immigration was. And it humanized the story as people told their own stories or their own family stories about immigration. So that kind of thing can help in fighting immigration polarization. These difficult conversations between individuals, like the ones you mentioned on Facebook, do they have a limit in their usefulness? Where does larger systemic change have to come in? Yes, it's not an either or, just one-on-one -on -one conversations or systemic things. I think we need to do both. So, for example, if Congress were to pass legislation changing our immigration laws to say that the word should be used non-citizen rather than alien, that's something at the systemic level. Similarly, if the Department of Homeland Security or U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services uh, puts out press releases about the value of immigration, um, or talks about why we need to help refugees in other countries. That's a systemic change that focuses public perceptions about immigration. That's equally as important as one-on-one -on -one conversations about it. So you need to have everyone working together. That makes a lot of sense. And so then thinking about all of all of these strategies that are available to Congress or to President Biden looking at systemic change. I know sometimes right in politics, you have to pick and choose what you prioritize. So if there was one strategy that you would want to see from government to counter immigration polarization, uh, what would you pick? Well, I think I'd, I'd never pick one thing. I would do a lot of different things. Um, I think first I would start with trying to find some legislation that most people could agree on 
and then see if that could get through Congress to sort of build goodwill among Congress people about immigration. And so for the fact last night that the House of Representatives passed legislation to legalize uh, the dreamers, the so-called children who came illegally with their parents but have been working here without uh, committing a lot of crimes, I think that's a good first step on the legislative level. I think that what we can also do is talk about the value of immigration at a national level, have dialogues um, between members of Congress and agency officials and the public, have town hall meetings about immigration and the value of immigration to start the dialogue at a national level. Um, and I think that we've done that in the past, in the 1910s and 1920s, for example, we had a higher percentage of immigrants in American society than we do now. And so there was an effort made by the Ford Motor Company and other companies to try to integrate immigration into the workplace. And so they would allow immigrants to study for the naturalization exam uh, on the factory floor on their breaks, for example. So I think talking more about the benefits of immigration generally can be a way that we can start the dialogue. It took a while to get more polarized. It'll take a while to get less polarized, but we can start the dialogue in a variety of ways right now. And so as a final major takeaway, if there's one step out of the strategies you've, you've listed that our audience could do today, tomorrow, next week to reduce immigration polarization, what would you say? I would say talk to people who have differing views on immigration. Um, try to understand where they're coming from, what their core values are, and once you find those core values, uh, say, I understand where you're coming from, try to find common ground, and then do the moral reframing to pitch immigration to them in a way that appeals to their core values rather than the way you feel about immigration. It's a slow process. It's not easy, but I think it's really the way to go. Absolutely. That concludes Crossing Borders, the third episode in Speak Now. We think this conversation has been particularly crucial in light of the shootings in Atlanta last week. So thank you, Professor, for joining us. To our listeners, keep a lookout for our fourth episode, Crashing the Party, where my colleague Rachel Christofferson will talk with former U.S. Representative Justin Amash. In 2019, Amash became the only libertarian member of Congress after a highly publicized split with the Republican Party. During their conversation, he'll discuss when and how to be an effective advocate in the face of intense partisan backlash. I hope you enjoyed yet another conversation brought to you by The Advocacy Project from Cornell University where we make it our mission to teach the basic skills in persuasion, public speaking, and effective communication to anyone with an internet connection. Today's episode is co-sponsored by Cornell Law School, Cornell ILR, and the Cornell Migrations Initiative. To learn more about the Advocacy Project story, as well as our co-sponsors, make sure to check out advocacypro.org. Again, that's advocacypro.org where you can take the first steps in wielding the power of your words, even when those of others might falter. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>